Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Cuban. We're going to teach a lesson today called Hell Yes. Hell question mark. Yes, exclamation point. And I want to talk to you guys today about a truth that most people don't prefer to talk about. Matter of fact, they would avoid it at all costs if they could. And that is the fact that hell is real, that hell exists. And that if we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, truly as our Lord and Savior, it's a matter of time. We are destined to that place. And so we just came out of a series titled Nevertheless. And I want to talk to you about why, why I feel like God ended ended up here, why God has placed me here in this moment to preach this message. We've just come out of a series titled Nevertheless, and in that series we talked about those who belong to God, regardless of the tragedy, regardless of the sickness or the disease, no matter what's going on around us, we can have faith to know that God holds us, that He sees us, that He's still on the throne, that He's still in control. He hasn't abdicated His sovereignty. He still is in charge of all things. He is Master and creator of the universe. And because we have confidence in those things, we can, as we learned, we can say, nevertheless, I will praise Him. Nevertheless, I am equipped by His Holy Spirit. And nevertheless, I will trust Him in all things, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my situation. And so those are very encouraging lessons. And certainly in times like these, we need them. Um, if you're outside of the area of Launch Point, or maybe outside the state of Tennessee, you may not know, but we've been recently just ravaged uh, by a tornado that came through and hit four counties starting in Nashville and just essentially followed I-40 east into Cookville. Many lives lost, billions of dollars of damage. And so it's, we're in a destructive time, not to mention the COVID-19 virus and the scare and the anxiety that that creates. And so nevertheless, was a good, encouraging sermon series. And then I feel God tell me, preach on hell. I'm all, that's not encouraging. And he says, I believe what he told me and what I'm telling you today is that it can be and that it should be. Because there are people out there right now that can't say nevertheless. Because they, they can't praise him. They can't walk in the equipping that he's given them. They can't trust Him because they don't know Him. And so He said, and for that reason, I want you to talk about hell. I want you to tell them that hell is real and that there's a way out of it. And so that's what I intend to do today to God's glory and ask that you pray for me as I do so. I'm going to start today out of Revelations chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. This is the judgment at the throne of God, the great white throne room of judgment, the great, white, the great white throne of judgment. It says, when I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, this is Revelations 20, 11 through 15, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, all of them standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written, listen to me, this is so important. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What do we see here? We see the cosmic courtroom at the end of the ages. We see God sitting on his throne, opening up the book of life, and looking as the judge to see who is written here and who isn't. Those that were written here, that, are, that will be written there, that are written there, will spend eternity with him. And those who are not will spend eternity, according to the word of God, in the lake of fire. In hell fire. Listen, this is not some story time or some story we tell our children to make them behave. Hell is a real place. We're going to get into that more in just a moment. But I want you to understand, God isn't showing John these things for any other reason so that we can ultimately understand and come to a belief that there is a way out of the eternity in hell separated from him. And so here we stand in this great courtroom, the great white throne of judgment of God, where he pronounces judgment on those who aren't saved. And in this courtroom, I, I've been in a lot of courtrooms. I was a law enforcement officer, as many of you know, for almost 20 years. And I've been in a lot of courtrooms. I've heard a lot of cases seen before the judge. But this courtroom isn't going to be like any of those courtrooms. Those courtrooms have a, have a prosecutor and a defender. This one has no defender, only has a prosecutor. There will be an accuser, but no advocate. There will be an indictment, but no defense. His sentence is eternal, with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there is no escape. Very simply put, let me put this as black and white to you as I know how to. God will judge you, God will judge me, all of us, based on one thing, from which there is no defense. You belong to Him, or you do not belong to Him. And if you belong to Him, you spend time with Him in eternity. If you do not, let me tell you, the answer to whether or not there's a hell is yes, there is a hell. And sadly, sadly, many, many people will spend their time there, will spend eternity there hmm. sadly we live in a we live in a time well we probably don't live in the only time but there's been a test it's always been this way where the enemy tries to convince us that hell isn't real that death isn't real that punishment for our sins isn't real it's been his plan to deceive us of this concerning this truth since the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he asks Eve, when he's trying to convince her to eat of the forbidden fruit, he, asks her, sure, he tells her, surely you will not die. Even though she heard this out of her own husband's mouth, who heard it straight from the mouth of God, he says, surely you will not die. He's trying to deny the reality that there is a judgment coming, and there is a judgment 
for sin. That there is no judgment for sin. When in fact there is judgment for sin. And Satan has been effective in this for all of eternity. It's, it's the modern atheist movement where we see this most commonly. We believe there is no God, and if there is no God, there is no afterlife. If there is no afterlife, there is no judgment. If there is no judgment, I can live however I determine to live. And the fact of the matter is, that's just not true. We have to live according to the Word of God, or else we're going to end up in a place of eternal damnation. I'm talking to you hard today, but I'm talking to you hard today because I want you to understand that what I'm telling you is absolutely true, declared from the word, word of God, from the mouth of God, from the mouth of His Son, Jesus Christ, is true. And if they declare it as true, we must accept it as truth. But why is it true? It's true because God is just. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of this, you will die. And because he is perfectly just, he has to act perfectly justly. If he says a thing will come to pass, if you do this, then I will do this, then guess what? That doesn't just count towards the promises of God. That counts including all things pertaining to God. If he says, if you eat of this tree, then this will happen to you, which is death, then because he is a just God and he cannot lie, he has to punish sinful behavior. And because he is just, we can expect that the justice, which is hell, will be poured out onto those whose name isn't written in the book of life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Not to convince you that hell is real, but to give you evidence that hell is real. That it's real, that it's eternal, that it is the wrath of God but more importantly, to tell you that it's not mandatory. And so here are the truths as I've described them. For those of you that aren't familiar with the way that I teach, maybe this is the first time you've sat in one of our sermons because you attend another church, and I appreciate you tuning in, but I, I teach out off of an outline, and so I make bullet points. I make points, and then I, I essentially expound on those points so that you can take notes a bit more easily, and I encourage you to do that. And so i got four points I want to make today. Number one, hell is a real place. If there were people sitting in the room with me today, I would ask them, repeat after me, hell is a real place. And so in your living room today, I want you to say, hell is a real place. Jesus declared the surety of the presence of hell in His own teachings. He is recorded in teaching in 1,850 verses in the New Testament. 13% of them deal with the subject of eternal judgment and hell. 13% of what Jesus had to say, he talked about judgment and hell, which is more than he talked about heaven. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And because Jesus talks about hell, we have to assume that hell is real. And hell isn't made any more evident the truthfulness of hell's existence isn't any more obvious than where it's stated in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. If you'll turn with me there, Luke chapter 16, I'm going to start in verse 19. It says this, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. 
Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. There's two verses I want to focus on in this text specifically. And those verses are 23 and 24. It says, in Hades, which just so you know is the place where the unrepentant goes until they're called to the great white throne of judgment. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony and in this flame. Several truths I want to consider here to demonstrate that hell truly is a real place. First, Jesus declared the truth of Hades with no explanation. He didn't try to prove that hell was real. Jesus never proved or tried to prove that hell was real. He said... And 13% of the 1,850 verses that he spoke in your scripture, he declared judgment and hell. So if Jesus declares it is true, we must consider it to be true. If we believe in Jesus, we have to believe in hell. If we believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, then we have to also believe in hell. Because if he can't be trusted in even one thing, then he can't be trusted in anything. If he ever lied once, he can't be the perfect sacrifice for us. He's either God or he is not God. He either speaks the truth or he does not speak the truth. There, is, there can be no gray area in him. He is either white or black. And we know because we bear evidence to it in our spirit that he is God. And those things that he says are true. And so we have to make a decision. Are we going to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And if we do, that hell is real. Or are we going to dismiss this portion of, of his teaching and thus declare, even if we don't know that we're doing it, that he can't possibly be God? And I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to go there. I'm going to accept even the harder parts of his teaching as true. Because in order for him to be God, they must also be true. And so I encourage you to understand first that Jesus knew and declared the truth of Hades. Secondly, it says that Lazarus lifted up his eyes, being in torment, shows that Lazarus' body did not cease to exist as many <coughs> excuse me, as many would have you believe. This is the truth of the non religious, the truth. Their truth. If you ever hear anybody say, well, my truth is such and such, their truth is going to send them to hell because there's only one truth, and that truth is this truth. And so this, But this is their truth, the non-religious religionists' truth, that there isn't a hell. That at the end of your life, you die. 
you're buried, you're put in the ground, and you go back to dust. And we know that that's absolutely ludicrous. They can't stand the idea that they can't live like Lazarus lived. Or excuse me, like the rich man lived. How did the rich man live? The rich man, according to this text, dressed in purple and fine living, joyously living in splendor every day. They spend their money on fine clothes. They spend their money on themselves, celebrating, living joyously without considering the needs of others. We have to consider the needs of others because hell is real. And because hell is real, those that don't will end up there. Thirdly, he pled for mercy. He knew he was guilty and therefore asked for what he knew was undeserved relief. This is what it says. He says, show me mercy. Because he knew that he didn't deserve what he was asking for. Fourthly, there is no relief from the existing torment. Knowing that there would be no eventual reprieve from hell, he asked Lazarus for a drop of water and temporary relief from his suffering. This place was so horrible that he just asked for just a temporary relief. Could you imagine spending all of eternity, imagine if you can, spending all eternity in hellfire? How, how agonizing it must be if you're willing to beg for a single drop of water, for a single drop of coolness on your tongue that will evaporate as quickly as it was placed there. But this is an all-consuming thought to you. God, show me mercy. Give me some relief. Can I tell you in hell there is no relief? I didn't read this portion of the, of the lesson. But her, hell is such a horrible place. Once he realized he wasn't getting any reprieve, once he realized he wasn't going to get mercy, he wasn't going to get the drop of water, he wasn't going to get anything he asked for, he asked for one thing. He said, can you at least send someone to go tell my brothers? So that they don't end up here too. Can I tell you Christian. This is our responsibility. If we believe that hell is real. And it is. And we don't spend our life. Telling others about. God Jesus. So that they don't end up there. Then we prove that we don't love. And when we prove that we don't love. We prove that there is no God. Who is love existing in us. And so I challenge you. Tell people the truth. Tell them when they ask you, do you believe hell is real? Tell them the truth. Tell them yes, and then tell them why you believe so. Explain to them the scriptures. Because it might just be the, the single thing that saves them from an everlasting torment. Number two, hell is eternal. Many will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning there are those who will never see heaven. And the scripture is full of lists. I'm going to read two lists to you, although they're not all encompassing, of the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
I want you, I'm going somewhere with this. Trust me, when I say hell is eternal and then I go to here, I go there for a reason. 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are declarative statements. He's saying, you might be able to dabble in this a little bit. It's okay if you're a little bit homosexual. It's, a little, it's okay if you're a little bit of a fornicator. It's okay if you're a little bit of an adulterer. It's okay if you're a little bit of a thief or a little covetous. No, he's saying, none of these people shall inherit. None of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. If this is who we are, then we can expect that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's another list in Galatians chapter 5 that reads very similarly. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh, how we act before we give our life to Jesus, are evident. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that you may that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he tells us, these are the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But this is not an all-encompassing list, because you know what? The Bible even says that if you know what to do and don't do it, that itself is a sin. And any sin will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And because... Everyone will inherit something. And we know that hell is real and hell is eternal. Then heaven and hell both are eternal. Because we are eternal beings. Matthew 25. There's a story in Matthew 25. Let me read it. We're, we're very familiar with it, but I'm going to read it anyway. It talks about the importance of doing for others. It's the thing we know to do right but not do that's still considered a sin. Matthew chapter 25. I'll find it here in just a second. Starts like this. I'm going to read in 41. Then he who will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison. And you, will not, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 46, I say all of that to show that this truth is evident. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Did you catch that? That's the verse that we don't pay attention to. But regardless of where you go, whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, Jesus himself declared this, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness, the righteous into eternal life. Hell is real. Not only is hell real, hell is eternal. 
and that place is a place of suffering. I've heard many rumors, theories, ideas that say hell is just a time. You go there for a time, you pay for your sins, and then you're released from there and you go to heaven. That's not evident in Scripture anywhere. For those of us that live a lifestyle of sin without repentance, there is one truth for us, or one truth for them, that hell is real and that hell lasts forever. Thirdly, hell is God's wrath poured out. As sinners, we deserve the wrath of God. It's a hard truth. As sinners, we deserve the wrath of God. Primarily, well, not primarily, because of the fact that we are sinners both by birth and by action. And I'll get to those verses in just a moment. But why do we deserve the wrath of God? Why is sinning such a horrible thing? We have a tendency in American society and really all around the world of saying sin's not that big a deal. Why does God get so angry when we sin? How can God judge us the way that He judges us? How can He send the people that He says He loves into, into eternal hellfire? Let me tell you, let me quote R.C. Sproul when you ask that question. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that you would ask a question of an almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign God, look Him in His face, and say to Him, How is it that you say that you love me, but you do all of these things? Let me tell you, the sin in your life is a cosmic rebellion to a beautiful, wonderful, all-powerful, almighty God that loved you so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, that we might be saved from judgment. How dare you talk to that God like that and expect not to receive the wrath of God? The wrath of God is necessary because God is just. Because He has to act justly. Because He will do that which He says that He will do. And He, pour his, he pours His wrath out. I get excited. Because, I don't, I don't get excited, it actually frustrates me. Because so many people want to say that that can't possibly be true of a God that loves. If the Bible says God is love, let me tell you, your definition of love is irrelevant. If you ever find yourself in a place to say, my loving God would never do blank, then what you're doing is you're making an idol of the God that you serve, small g, and you've displaced the God of the eternal universe. Because if what you say God should do is in contradiction to the Word of God, then you've made a false God so that you could feel better about yourself. If God says He's going to pour His wrath out on us, that we deserve His wrath, then guess what? He's going to pour His wrath out on us because we deserve His wrath. I know it's a hard message, but it's intended to be. It needs to be. I feel like the Holy Spirit is trying to shake us awake today. Not just those that haven't come to know Jesus Christ as, our, as their Lord and Savior, but maybe even those of us who have and have determined that we made a declaration in an altar. And because we made a declaration in an altar, somehow that's justified us. That hasn't justified us if all they were were words. What you've done is you've convinced yourself of a lie that you can speak your way into heaven. You can't speak your way into heaven. You have to repent your way into heaven. It's the reason that Jesus Christ himself said, coming out of the desert, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was his primary message. 
What did he come for? He came to save us. And he can't save us unless we're willing to repent. True repentance requires action beyond altar time. That's good. Y'all should tweet that. So whether you've never given your life to Christ or you've given your life to Christ and determined, or you've said a prayer and determined to live how you want to live, thus showing you never actually belong to Christ, let me tell you, you deserve the wrath of God because you are a sinner. Because I am a sinner. Because we are all, according to the Word of God, sinners by both birth and by action. By birth, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man Adam's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You hear what he's saying? He said, because one man sinned, that person is Adam, and through him sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, making it true that all of us have sinned. You carry a bloodline of a sin nature. Whew. What we're in need of is a blood transfusion. We're also sinners by action. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I feel like I could repeat this and repeat this and repeat this and I often do. Because so many of us don't listen. We fall short of the glory of God. God created us in His own image. He gave us His image to bear to the world. And we live as though we are... When we live sinfully, we're reflecting a poor image of Him. I told the church a couple weeks ago that one of the worst things you can do is tell people that you're a Christian and not live like a Christian. Because if you tell them that you're a Christian... They're going to believe you. And if you don't live like you're a Christian, they're going to believe that that's what a Christian ought to look like. And I ask you now, what face are you reflecting to them concerning God? What are you showing them about God's true nature? If you are His image bearer, what image are you showing them? All of us have fallen short of His glory, which is what that means. All of us have acted in such a way so as to diminish His glory in the lives of the people around us and in our own life. Ooh. And I'll be honest with you, I just got freaked out by that. Because that includes me too. It's not, it's not as unoffen as I'd like for it to be. That I don't say something I shouldn't say. Do something I shouldn't do. Act some way I shouldn't act. Lash out when I shouldn't lash out. Which is why I have to not only repent in salvation, but live a lifestyle of repentance. Romans 3, 10 and 12 says, None righteous, none who understand, none who seek after God, all have turned aside, all are useless, none does good. So not only are we sinners by birth, but by action. And because of this, we deserve, due our, to our own divine rebellion, the wrath of God. I don't know how else to say it more plainly than that. Because of this divine rebellion, those who do not accept Christ or who have yet to accept Christ are children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3 says, among them, too, among them we too are formerly... Let me start over. Among them we too 
all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by our very essence, the very base of who we are, children of wrath, even as the rest. Hell is the place where his wrath is poured out on all who reject him. Because that's what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. But praise God. And this is number four. Hell is not mandatory. We're standing here. Let me tell you, there's, there's two options. In this hand, you have the wrath that you have coming. And on this hand, you have Jesus. We have a choice to make. Are we going to accept the wrath we have coming by not accepting Jesus Christ? Or are we going to accept Jesus Christ and understand that God made a way for us to avoid his wrath? I ask people all the time, or actually I asked several people in preparation for this lesson. If God had a plan to save us, and according to the word he did, and that plan was before the foundations of the earth, what did he save us from? And I hear all kinds of stuff. They said he saved me from my sins. Or he saved me from who I used to be. These are the things I, I hear most often. These answers aren't true. God saved you from hell. God saved us from hell when he sent his son Jesus Christ to take on the wrath that we deserve. What's it going to be? Is it going to be Jesus? Accept the Jesus who took the wrath for you? Or are you going to receive your own wrath and spend hell in eternity? We see the truth of this in John 3.16, the passage we are all so incredibly familiar with. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Please don't underestimate or look past the love that God has for you. For God so loved that he sacrificed everything. But let me tell you, he sent him so that we might be saved from judgment, saved from our sin or saved from hell John 3 17 through 18 says which is the passage right after this but gets very little air time I think it's equally important because it doesn't just say what God did it says why he did it for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God so this text says Jesus came to save us from judgment because we were already we already stood judged we were born for lack of a better way to put it in the hole already God sent his only begotten son so that we could be dug up out of that hole and not receive the judgment that we deserve. And those that don't accept him have been judged already. 
Jesus came to save us from that judgment, which is eternity in hell. And he accomplished this by allowing Jesus to take our place. He took our sin so that we might take God's wrath, so that we might be made righteous. Moving from children of wrath to children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3.25, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice in his blood through faith which was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance and his patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This is what we're to understand from this text. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, and he's, he's our atoning sacrifice in two ways. He's our atoning sacrifice as our substitution. He substituted himself and received the penalty of sin for us penalty of sin is death he crawled up on that cross and died on our behalf a God who didn't have to a God who could have just remade the human race instead of saving this one loved you enough to substitute himself and die on your behalf but not only was that that atonement substitutionary. It was punitive. Because the wrath of God still needs to be appeased. And so this is the cup that Jesus said, please take from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Please. I don't, I don't think Jesus was looking forward to having wrath poured out, not in his flesh. Remember, he was holy human too but he was submissive to the call of God on his life he not only called up, called up on the cross and died for us he received the full wrath of God all so that we can be saved all so that God can be appeased all because without the shedding of blood none of us can be forgiven So how do we accept this truth? I told, I told you guys that there's a, two kinds of people. There are those that will end up eternity in hell and those that are eternally with God. How do I, how do I ensure that I spend eternity with God? The Bible's very clear. Through faith alone and Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8 And faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God gave us an undeserved gift that we receive in faith. It's not anything that we accomplish. Because in verse 9 it says, so that no one can brag. Everything we have, we have because God determined to give it to us, including our own salvation. In Christ alone. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Let me tell you, I think we gloss over 
this. If you declare with your mouth that Christ is Lord, means that you have to truly declare that Christ is Lord, but not just speak it out of your mouth, but believe it in your heart. That He is Lord, that you give up your life, your rights to yourself. You become His. And with Him as Lord, and with you now part of His kingdom, He's the King. You have to listen to the decrees, adhere to the decrees of the King. Until you're willing to set yourself aside and follow the King, be submissive to the King, He can't be your Savior. This is why an altar prayer can never be enough. Because an altar prayer doesn't require submission. It just requires words. So let me ask you, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that what I've told you is true? That hell is real? That it is eternal? That it is the place where God pours out His wrath? But most importantly, do you believe that it's not mandatory? Jesus died so that we could avoid such a place. So that in this final judgment we read about in Revelations chapter 20, when he opens up the book of life and he searches for Jim Kubik, he says, yes, this one's mine. If you want that, if you're feeling conviction in your heart, if you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, and what I mean by that is you're, you don't know what's going on with you, but you know you have to make a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. I want to pray with you. I want to talk to you. I want to spend time showing you what the Christian looks like, the Christian life looks like, even after the confession, even after the repentance, even after the salvation. Let us pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, we thank you that you love us, that every truth that we've declared today is out of your word. I've tried, God, not to inject a lot of opinion. I, I tried to stay very, very close to your word today so that it couldn't be, so that I didn't have to defend it. God, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice that, that is being convicted and wants to say the prayer, confess you as Lord and Savior, your son Jesus is Lord and Savior, we make this prayer. Father God, forgive me for the sins that I've committed. I repent. I set aside all wrongdoing. The lists of the sins, God, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid committing those sins but I know I can't do it without you or the power of your Holy Spirit I know I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be a perfect human being but because your Holy Spirit lives in me I have the ability to pursue Christ likeness so I do repent expecting this to be a process a process that you're going to walk alongside me in and I thank you for that so I turn away from my sin but more importantly God I turn towards your son Jesus with him as my example with your word as my guide I commit my life to you. I thank you, God, that you have forgiven. That your word says that when we are when we are willing to confess and ask for forgiveness, that you forgive us. Not only that you forgive us, but that you that 
you impart to us righteousness. So God, I thank you for that righteousness. I thank you for your righteousness. Teach me how to walk in it and live in it so that I might ultimately honor you with everything that I am. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.